Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to What I Wish I Learned. Today, coming at you solo in the studio today, I do not have Noah or our very special friend Dave. Not even Sam is here with us today. In fact, all I have is Alan. But I really wanted to do this episode today in order to finish out something that we started a little while ago and never really had a conclusion to. And so, as many of you know, season two was about Vietnam and why the United States got involved in such a conflict. But throughout the whole series or season two of it, Noah and I weren't really feeling it. We weren't receiving the response we wanted, and I just wasn't in the mood for it. However, seeing as I am now on summer break, it makes sense to revisit this. And as I mentioned in the beginning of season two, if you can call back to that, Vietnam is what started everything for me in the terms of how I teach and how I view, you know, learning and why I'm able to have a style of, of conveying information like this, where it's topical and I can explore large swabs of, of history and not just brush over things and looking at it like a timeline. And so Vietnam and the whole unit of it is very close to home for me and close to my heart. And so I really wanted to revisit it. And so today's episode really goes out to two kinds of crowds. One, the people that didn't really get the conclusion that they wanted to Vietnam. And two, it's for the people, our strong fans out there, because this one's going to be a long one. I'm going to, in one episode, finish out what should have been recorded in an entire season. And I'm going to be exploring a lot of different ideas and a lot of different thoughts without dialogue. It's going to be a lot of monologuing and a lot of just, you know, information. I'm going to try to keep it as entertaining as I can. I'm going to call back to the skills I've learned back when I was teaching online on Zoom, where you're basically talking into a microphone with no apparent audience. But if you, you know, if you give it the time, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. But even though I'm in the studio by myself today, I'm still going to have Noah edit it. And therefore, Noah, I'm going to have you cue the music right now. So, welcome back to season 2.4, basically, where we are going to continue our conversation of the Vietnam War. Where we left off last time, it was a, a low point for the whole war. And I'm sad to say that the low points of the war, if you look at them as like a trajectory, are just going to be pretty consistent. Where we left off was there was... A protest in the, the streets of Saigon where a Buddhist monk would be forced to burn himself in order to protest a system that he did not support, where the, the South Vietnamese government was actively suppressing the Buddhist minority. Mm. I got to drink water eventually. Um, and so where this 73-year-old monk was essentially uh, forced into a position where he had to burn himself, or at least he felt that way. And the conversation ended with 
me opening up the door to questioning in, uh, of, of the U.S. strategy in South Vietnam. Who are we as foreign you know, invaders or foreign you know, adversaries to Vietnam? Who are we to pick the wrong side? Because it certainly felt like we were picking the wrong side. The South Vietnamese government was suppressing their people, limiting free speech, limiting basic freedoms that we as Americans told ourselves that we were going to fight for, that we would not only fight for our own ability to have it, we were going to fight for the whole world to have it. But then we turn that around and support the wrong team. And so the course of the war is going to follow this trend too, progressively and systematically. The United States, the people of the United States are going to learn and are going to see firsthand for the first time on television, on the news, and on every level of government, just how misdirected our government was and that we're not necessarily the good guys that we thought we always were. My objective, per, per the state curriculum for the subject I teach, is to show American history from the, the, from the perspective of America not being exactly what we think it is. And don't get me wrong, I think it's the, the experiment of the United States and the ability to to self-regulate and to self-direct our entire future is one of the best things to ever happen to humanity. But there's a lot more to history than, and there's a lot more to American history than, we, than we've been led on. And I'm going to say it, this is something I wish I learned growing up, that, yeah, we have tons of flaws and we picked the wrong team, but we have to learn this so we don't have a repeat of Vietnam. And unfortunately, because this topic of Vietnam is so taboo, so many people avoid the conversation entirely. And because we did, the whole situation of Vietnam repeated itself with Afghanistan. If you call back to our first season, mistake after mistake that was so preventable could have been avoided, but we didn't learn our lesson. And so I'm going to pick back up to where we were. A Buddhist monk becomes a martyr. And so a low point in the war really escalates into a further deep pit. Following the Buddhist monk's um, suicide, the president of South Vietnam, ZM, is uh, facing a rebellion on his hands because of what just happened. The Buddhists are in revolt. His opposition's in revolt. The Americans are wary of supporting him and almost withdrawing all their support. And so DM issues or ZM issues a curfew and he's going down into a total lockdown of his country. Um, curfews, students are protesting, the Buddhists are pro pro protesting and the Arvin is the, the army of South Vietnam. The Arvin is unsure of what to do. And the American advisors in South Vietnam witnessing the entire situation go down are in a state of confusion. Because on the one hand, they're standing on the front lines on the perimeters of Saigon, protecting the city from the radical communist northern invaders. But right behind them, that same city that they are defending is on fire in a full-blown revolution. 
It's a civil war within a civil war. But just like American foreign policy dictates, once we're involved, we can't really get out. ZM and his generals have a uh, fallout. And the generals contact President Kennedy, or attempt to. And they ask him, you know, President Kennedy, what would you do if the, the South Vietnamese army were to take down forcibly the president of South Vietnam to have a coup? Unfortunately for the president and for history, Kennedy wasn't home that night that the generals reached out, nor was the vice president, nor was the chief of staff or any senior-ranking members of the Pentagon. The person to receive this message from the South Vietnamese government or from their generals was a deputy undersecretary of the State Department, someone who, under normal circumstances, does not have the authority or the authorization to respond to such offers. And he gives them the go-ahead. Speaking on the behalf of the President of the United States, the Deputy Undersecretary of the State Department tells the South Vietnamese generals that the United States would neither support nor oppose a South Vietnamese coup against President Diem. A total blunder on the State Department's end. Because, in theory, the United States should not be supporting any coups of a lawfully elected democracy. You know, we, you know, we might do it here and there, but it's not what we should be striving to do. And the generals take the plan into effect. And ZM's generals in the Arvin corner him in his palace, White House-style building, and forcibly remove ZM from the Capitol and make him advocate uh, or remove himself from office. On the way to being removed, ZM makes one single uh, demand. He will revoke the presidency only if the generals allow him safe passage to the United States. They agree. But while ZM is on his way in an armored personnel vehicle to the capital or to the airport from the capital, he is executed. It is unknown who did it, drivers, security, generals, we don't know. But he's executed. And so Kennedy wakes up that morning to find out that someone in his government authorized the killing of a foreign leader in the time of war in a nation that we are actively supporting. And he is devastated because what he says is this single act will begin a process of or set the precedent that the way to remove a leader is not through election and not through democracy and debate, but rather by death. And the United States does not want to be responsible for such a precedent. And President Kennedy said, if we go, if this had, or since this had gone through, the next presidents are all going to be removed by force. Because now the South Vietnamese government, and the military especially, now believes that this is a viable way of elections, of choosing a leader. And so the death of Diem, even though celebrated in the streets of Saigon, is a low point in the long-term view of the war. Because from now on, Kennedy was right. Every single leader is going to be removed by force or threatened out of their position. 
And it is going to be very difficult for the United States to back a leader and not seem like they're going to do the same thing. Because despite Kennedy and most of his administration not being in favor of this act, the people don't know that. From all they know, the Americans were supportive because this under, the deputy undersecretary confirmed it. And so Kennedy and the American government, the State Department, the office of the president have now lost a series of legitimacy. And South Vietnam will very nearly never stabilize and will always be in a state of near civil war within a civil war. And following this total destruction of the South Vietnamese legitimacy, something else happens. But this time, not on the soil of South Vietnam, but on the home front of the United States. Just following the assassination of ZM, President Kennedy will be on his way to speak in Houston and He's actually on his way to go speak about um, the current state of the American space program, which, as of the recording of this, is a new season that we've actually released on this podcast. So definitely go check out that episode. But Kennedy's on his way to go do a speech. And as he's driving through Houston, he's doing it in an open-top motorcade, riding through the streets, waving, doing the presidential thing, and, you know, being a very public figure. And up until this point, the American people and the office of the president did not see an issue in this. The fact that a president can be in open air within a crowd that is not regulated. Kennedy will lose his life in this moment. As he's rolling through the street, um, Oswell, Harvey Oswell, might be saying the first name wrong, will pull the trigger twice on his rifle and shoot Kennedy first through the neck. If you see a video, there's actual recordings of it. And the recording, I'll describe it to you, is obviously low quality as the video is 60 years old, but you can see what I'm talking about if you look back on it. First, Kennedy will reach down and grab his neck as if choking on something. His, the first lady will immediately notice that Kennedy is not well in this moment. The, the person in front of Kennedy is the governor of Texas, who is also now slouching down after that first shot. As it pierces through Kennedy's neck, it flies forward and into the leg of the governor of Texas. As Kennedy is grasping for his neck to stop the bleeding, a second shot rings out. This time, entering the back of the head of Kennedy and exiting the front of his forehead. And Kennedy will not die in that moment. He will die several hours later at the hospital. But essentially, this motorcade ride would be his last, as Kennedy is assassinated following this trip to Houston. In terms of the Vietnam War, this could not come at a worse time. Because Diem is now assassinated, there are over 16,000 troops in Vietnam, and Kennedy is now out of the picture. The very man who would lead us to space, the man that would change the narrative of what it means to lead in America, and the same man that began the war of Vietnam is now out of the picture. And his successor 
Lyndon B. Johnson, is going to inherit what he would call one of the greatest mistakes in American foreign policy. Lyndon B. Johnson, and I attempt to limit my opinion as much as I can in all episodes I do, but Lyndon B. Johnson, in my mind, is one of the last great presidents in American history because he was not a man that necessarily wanted to lead, but he was a man that knew he had a calling to fix a system that was broken. Lyndon B. Johnson always advised Kennedy against any sort of intervention in the Vietnam War. And I'm going to do a slight sidebar here that what's so amazing about the Vietnam War is one singular conflict, a small little country in Southeast Asia can have such rippling effects in American foreign policy, American domestic policy, and even American culture. Lyndon B. Johnson, an opposer to the war, still, because of the motivation of the war, is able to do so many changes in the country. But, like he says before, he hated the idea of the Vietnam War because he believed it distracted the American people and, more importantly, distracted the government that is already so strung tight and apparently on a low budget to actual change in the country. And on top of everything... After being inaugurated on Air Force One on the flight home from Houston, standing next to the First Lady who is still covered in the blood of John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson never felt like he was a legitimate president because he was never officially voted in to lead the country as the commander-in-chief. However, like I said before, I believe that he is one of the last great presidents because even within his short term as leader of the free world, he will pass over 200 pieces of legislation, including the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. He provided federal aid for people attempting to go to college. He passed Medicare for people under the poverty line, all in attempt to create what he believed the Great Society. He would look as he would walk the halls of the White House to his mentor and who his hero was of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he would look at him and imagine what that man was trying to achieve with the New Deal, a program, if you know about World War II or prior to World War II, revitalized what we view our country as. Would your country step in when you're hurt? FDR showed that it would, created social safety nets. Lyndon B. Johnson wanted to extend that, and he did, providing the ability for everyone to have the right to vote, to ending segregation, and to essentially encouraging every single American to get greater education. That was one of the best things a man could do for our country. And another hallmark of a great leader is a man that can take a team that he recognizes as not necessarily his own, but surround himself with the best and the brightest around the world. And that's what Lyndon B. Johnson did. He kept that phenomenal team that Kennedy had before him. And all of this, all these amazing things that he was achieving, those 200 pieces of legislation were always overshadowed by the dread that Lyndon B. Johnson felt about Vietnam. He never wanted to be involved. 
He didn't want American troops there. In fact, he didn't care that the communists were expanding. I don't know how he saw it or how he could foretell it, but in his mind, he said, it won't matter if the North capture the South. Communism will not spread. It's a hallmark of a smart man. I'm in the same thought, too. We thought of that whole domino effect of one country falls, the next would, but we tried to put the human spirit, just like the State Department did, into some kind of equation, into some kind of format, and try to calculate it. Oh, yeah, sure, if you lose one country, the next one might fall, but that's not how people work. Lyndon B. Johnson saw that. He was against the coup. He was against the war. In fact, he was against supporting South Vietnam at all. He saw that same image of that monk and believed that they were on the support of the wrong team. And he was also against the coup. And here's a quote from him, and I think it perfectly describes how Lyndon B. Johnson felt about the war. I want those damn South Vietnamese to get off their butts, to get in those jungles and whip some commies. Then I want them to leave me the hell alone. I want you to imagine that with a Southern accent, too. He was a Southern Democrat. And so following the assassination of ZM, following the assassination of Kennedy, and following the inauguration of, of LBJ, the state of the war is at an all-time low. The support for the war is not there. The, the North is clearly winning. And the image of the South is tarnished. And to make things worse, the sister of the former South Vietnamese president, Ziem, is in America at this point. She avoids the entire coup. And she goes on live television on CNBC or CBS and um, calls out the American government for being weak and for supporting this revolution. And so using this, uh, this video recording, using the assassination of, of Kennedy and ZM, the Viet Cong, which are the southern rebels fighting in favor of the north, begin a mega recruiting event across the countryside. Because what they smell is fear and what they smell is weakness. And any you know, powerful being or any you know, predator or whatever you want to call it that is in a battle... In a conflict, which they are. These, are, these are two giants going at it, two, the Americans and the North, they're going at it. And when they smell fear, when they smell blood, the Viet Cong believe now's their opportunity to win. So they begin daily attacks on the South to further destabilize the country. They, de- they then encourage the Buddhists and the students and all the opposition to ZM to further expand their attacks on the Arvin. And by this point of, of the death of, of Kennedy, 40% of the nation of South Vietnam and 50% of the population of South Vietnam is now under the active control of the Viet, Viet Cong. And years following, two years following the death of ZM, South Vietnam will go through nine different presidents, all dying in the way that Kennedy predicted either being removed by force or assassinated. And so the country is spiraling. And so, like I just said, by ni- from 1964, June, to January 1965, I was, I was wrong in my first number, eight different go- uh, governments will replace themselves, all seen as puppets to the, to the Americans so the South Vietnamese government don't even trust their own, their own government anymore. 
And while the United States and the South Vietnamese are at an all-time low, the North is experiencing one of the greatest moments of stability throughout the war. Call back to Ho Chi Minh, the man viewed as the, the founding father of Vietnam, is on tour essentially across Vietnam to, to rally the people to just stay in the war a little longer. Remember when I talked about war expectations? Just like when you're in a classroom and your expectations are, if class is over in 10 minutes, I expect it to be over in 10 minutes. And every single minute over that 10 minutes that I thought it would be over is going to be you know, terrifying and, and, and hard and it's going to take a long time because my expectation was 10 minutes. But if I know something's going to last longer, then I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to tackle it. Same with the war. Americans thought we'd be in and out. Ho Chi Minh, he's on tour to encourage his people to maintain a realistic expectation of the war. But he's doing it in a very Ho Chi Minh fashion. Because unlike American politicians and billionaires, when they're on tour, man, they are wearing some nice suits. They got some nice cars. Their watch is probably worth more than your entire house. You know, they make it known that I, whoever I am, earning your vote, am more powerful than you. I'm wealthier than you. And clearly, I'm above you. And so Ho Chi Minh takes a different approach. While on tour, he makes it a point to only wear what the poorest people in his country can wear. He's wearing torn up sandals, a shirt that barely fits with holes in it that he's patched in himself. He has an unshaved face. He doesn't seem like he's, you know, that clean right now. And so on the, on the face of it, you would say, gross, why would you do that? You're just looking unprofessional. You don't look presentable. But to the North Vietnamese people, it sends a different message. While the South is in turmoil, their governments are puppets, and they're killing each other, and they can't even decide who's going to be wealthier and powerful, I, Ho Chi Minh, am above no man in my country. I will dress like the poorest are, because when I look at myself and if I don't like it, that'll motivate me even more to improve my nation. And I wish Noah were here to talk to me, like to ask questions about it, but in reality, in the 1960s and 70s, this is what the appeal to communism was. Obviously, now, hindsight 2020, we can look back and be like, holy crap, what a terrible disaster of, a, of an economic system. But the people back then, they see this. A man that, despite having the opportunity and the ability to be wealthier, chooses not to be. Maybe inherently humans are, are better. Maybe we can achieve this dream of equality amongst all. And so, as the South is at its low point, the North is rallying, and they feel like the war is going to be over. However, Ho Chi Minh has his reservations. In fact, he has a fear that the violence will escalate. And it, he likens it to this. When you corner a feral animal, it has two options. One, it will cower and freeze up. Or two, it will lash out. So Ho Chi Minh believes that the United States, being that feral animal right now, is cornered. And that it feels like it's losing. And he, th he thinks that the United States, rather than backing down from this conflict and, and winning or leaving on good terms before it gets worse, is going to 
escalate the conflict. And he, he believes that they're going to lash out. So he fears violence and escalation. And so he thought the Americans would be more involved in the war if the North continues to escalate. Even though the North has the upper hand and ZM is out of the picture and the U.S. is scrambling to reorganize itself, he believes that it should, they should just allow the United States and the South to play out. Let this whole thing unwind on its own. The Americans will figure it out on their own to leave. But he's not, his ideas aren't popular right now. The young people of North Vietnam, as young people always do, want to escalate. They want to intensify. The war needs to continue. Even the Soviets agree with Ho Chi Minh. Escalation means death. But the Soviets and Ho Chi Minh will wring out one of their last opportunities of power over the Politburo of North Vietnam. Because as, as Ho Chi Minh ages and the young people come to power, he's no longer as popular. Sure, he will always be the founding father of Vietnam. Yes, he will always be nearly a godlike figure, but he won't always be the man in charge of the nation anymore. And the Soviets, because they act on uh, the account of let, uh, let us end this conflict, that's not very popular with the new government of North Vietnam. And so here enters China, the People's Republic of China. China is a newly formed communist country at this point, and they have proven their ability to fight and to uh, achieve what they want in terms of the expansion of communism. In 1960, the Americans believed that the idea of communism was universal, that everyone who followed the idea of communism was of the same thought, and they only wanted expansion, and that there was only one version of communism, the way that Moscow laid it out. The truth was, every single version of communism in play was different. The way the Cubans did it was different. The way the Russians did it was different. And the way that the Chinese were doing it was different. And now we're learning that the Vietnamese did it differently. And so we thought that if the Russians were involved, the Chinese would always be involved. But that's not the case here. Russia and, and Ho Chi Minh are the minority in terms of their ideas of de-escalation. China wants escalation. And Ho Chi Minh loses his power and so he would never be responsible for another piece of legislation in North Vietnam. He would remain a beloved figurehead, but more than often than not, he wouldn't even be invited to votes of North Vietnam. And it's one of those moments that if Ho Chi Minh had played it differently, the entire war could have looked differently. Ho Chi Minh excuses himself from the vote of escalation and never returns to the voting table. But just like he predicted, with escalation came response. With escalation came violence and death. Under new leadership, North Vietnam is expanding their attacks to nearly two attacks daily on South Vietnam. The 16,000 American quote-unquote advisors are not enough. The Arvin is too busy fighting itself to do anything. Lyndon B. Johnson, by the advice of his advisors, and against his own better judgment, will now escalate the war even more. He appoints World War II General Westmoreland to command American forces over uh, South Vietnam. 
They will send the American Navy into the Tonkin Gulf, which is the Gulf right near Vietnam, and begin daily bombings of North Vietnam, just like Ho Chi Minh predicted, just like he was afraid of. These bombings would continue nearly every single day until the very end of the war, years and years later. However, this escalation is not reported to the American people. What's beautiful about this war is despite how negative it was and how stupidly avoidable it was, is that I'm so glad that we are able to talk about it because it will expose so many truths that we all kind of felt in our hearts about our government that we never really knew was true. And so this bombing is one of those examples. They will bomb North Vietnam. They will bomb civilian targets, innocent people, for the sake of political capital. And what's worse about it is they won't tell the American people for the reason of we weren't at war. We will enter a conflict without an official declaration of war bombing innocent people. And if, I, if you know anything about international law, that is a crime. That is not allowed. And we will do so. And we will continue to escalate it. For the sake of what? Political capital. For people in power to feel better about their decisions and to just buy slightly enough time to avoid, you know, repercussions of this. Let the next administration worry about it. The general advised Lyndon B. Johnson to bomb critical targets of North Vietnam to loosen their resolve of conflict. Their goal, the American goal, is to scare the North out of war. You want to escalate, they say, you're about to feel the might of an overbloated military budget that has nowhere to spend their money. Unfortunately, um, the first bombing run over North Vietnam, over um, Hanoi, the capital of North Vietnam, the first wing of fighters to go over, one of the planes is shot down. U.S. pilot Alvarez. As he's shot down, he survives, and he is captured. And per following Geneva Convention protocol, when you are a captured prisoner of war, all you have to provide to your captors is name, rank, and serial number. And under these rules, pilots are officers. You may not torture or hurt. On, like you, may, you must provide livable conditions and acceptable conditions to prisoners of war. That is the rules of war. I know it's funny to say rules of war, oxymoron almost, but there was war, there's rules. You don't want to break these rules because if the war ends, you can be prosecuted for them. When Alvarez is shot down, he follows the protocol. Name, rank, serial number, the response of the North Vietnamese. Oh, we don't have to follow these rules. We don't have to follow the Geneva Convention. We don't have to respect prisoner of war rules. Why? Because you are a prisoner of war. The American government has not declared war. There is no state of war. Therefore, you are not a prisoner of war. You are a terrorist combatant bombing civilian targets. Alvarez, unfortunately, like hundreds, even thousands of American prisoners of war would not receive proper treatment after being captured because 
the American government failed to start to state an official declaration of war. Therefore, torture was on the table and exploitation of, of labor and straight up death. All because we couldn't declare war. Alvarez would be the first. He would spend the entire duration of the war in captivity until the very end when a peace conference or a ceasefire is signed, returning him home. Remember how I mentioned the Navy was in the Tonkin Gulf, those same boats that were launching uh, planes in the air to bomb Hanoi? Well, the positioning wasn't just there to have a clear shot for the capital. The American government, and specifically uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, positioned the Navy there as bait for the North Vietnamese. Yes, there is no declaration of war, but McNamara and the Defense uh, Committee, they want an official resolution to be there. Reason, you know, a little bit, you know, an incentive to be there. So they positioned their Navy right off the coast of where a North Vietnamese naval base is. North Vietnam's Navy at this point is nothing. They barely have, you know, shallow water ships that can, you know, hold their own against maybe pirate fishing boats, but not against the might of an, an American air carrier fleet. And so on paper, it seems like there is no danger. However, McNamara places it there, knowing that it would draw out the North Vietnamese to attack. And they're correct. On... Uh, the night of 1965 of January 8th, um, an American destroyer is accidentally, quote-unquote, attacked by a North Vietnamese vessel. No one's hurt. Both sides exchange a couple shots at each other, and they go home. But it gives America exactly what they wanted. Ho Chi Minh's angry because he knows that this is what the plan was. And um, the replacement to Ho Chi Minh, Le Zuan, knew this was coming too, that because an American vessel is attacked in international waters, it gives uh, President Lyndon B. Johnson all the justification he may need for a special military operation. McNamara drafts up a document claiming American vessels, American people, are no longer safe in international waters near the coast of North Vietnam. Therefore, the American government must have a resolution for a special military operation to maintain peaceful operations in the, in the coast of North Vietnam, essentially declaring war without declaring war. This is a blanket resolution to give, Ho Ch or to give Lyndon B. Johnson the ability to deploy American troops, ships, and planes without prior authorization to Congress. The resolution is passed 88 to 2. 88 in favor of the blanket resolution for Lyndon B. Johnson, two abstaining. No congressman voted against, that was, in the House, uh, that was in the Senate, not a single congressman in the House will vote against the resolution. And so this single resolution also bumps Lyndon B. Johnson's popular support. He jumps from 42% approval rating to 72 in a single night after the resolution is passed. It seems like a, pro a positive move in the right direction. But more and more bombings cannot be sustained. What we learn as military doctrine in America is, 
hell yeah, we can throw as many planes and bombs at any so any single target as we want. But until you put boots on the ground, not a single conflict can be won. We can bomb you into hell, basically. But we don't win until the territory is ours. So with this blanket resolution, Lyndon B. Johnson can deploy troops. And he, despite not wanting to do it, is going to do it anyway. Because in his mind, sure, I don't want to be here. I don't think this is worth it. But the best way to end it, he thinks is to end it quickly. It's like a band-aid on the on his arm. Oh man, it hurts to pull a little bit of a little. And it's not going away on its own. My skin's not going to just kick it out. I have to rip it off. And to do it, it's going to cost American blood. Not just money. And so Operation Rolling Thunder kicks in the gear. He increases the tempo of the war in his final attempt to scare the Vietnamese out of the situation. And again, Operation Rolling Thunder was not told to the American people. It was not retaliation, quote-unquote, but an act of aggression. And so, even though he does it, Operation Rolling Thunder overall is a failure, which we'll learn here in, in a moment, too. War in Vietnam cannot be just finished with bombs alone. Because when you're fighting in a, a war on this, uh, this scale... There is no factories. There is no supply lines that are clear cut highway systems, supply lines. It is jungle and volunteers on foot and volunteers hiding in the jungle. You drop a bomb on the trail that they're walking, guess what? Tomorrow they're going to walk around it. So Operation Rolling Thunder is not going to achieve what they want. And so in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson authorizes the arrival of American troops into South Vietnam. The government of South Vietnam was not even told about this. What they see is, or when they find out about it, is when American troops simply walk into Saigon and let the government know, hey, by the way, guess what? We're here. It wasn't, there was no declaration ahead of time. There was no you know, official statement given by the State Department. It was, we're here now, get over it. Again, shows a bit of American hubris as well, because we couldn't rely, in our mind, we thought we can't rely on the South Vietnamese to do this themselves. We have to do it ourselves. Those guys drop the ball, it's our turn. Not to train them, but to just take over the fight for them. But for the most part, America, the, the Vietnamese people are grateful. But even though Lyndon B. Johnson, up until this point, has been able to hide Rolling Thunder, hide all of this stuff to the American people, the deployment of American troops on foreign soil cannot be hidden. Most American soldiers going to this country hadn't even heard of it beforehand. And now you're being sent to defend a country from communism, a country you've never even heard of? What the hell? And so we get the first big-scale anti-war movements across the country. And these are going to spiral into something, <laughs> honestly, something amazing and something revolutionary. The 1960s are a weird time. On the one hand, we have the greatest narrative of American prowess, unprecedented wealth, employment on scales we've never even seen, the sole hegemon of global politics, the ability to go to the moon. But on the other hand, war, instability, lies, 
cover up racism? 1960s are weird. And the anti-war movement in Vietnam really go to show, they just show off what it's all about. And so as some Americans are volunteering to go fight for their country and to go fight for democracy, what they believe is democracy overseas, others are volunteering to oppose their government. These are people who are anti-war, who believe the government is going against the Constitution. You can't deploy troops as a president. You need a Congress's authorization for a declaration of war. We're against the bombings. And the anti-war movement spreads globally. From Washington, D.C., to Paris, to London, to Prague, to Berlin, to even Denver. The war, the world, doesn't really know where it stands. On the one hand, we're fighting communism and the greatest threat to freedom, or what we believe is the greatest threat to freedom in the world. On the other hand, we're fighting our own government that we believe is now the greatest threat to freedom. But let's get back to Vietnam. The first major conflict of Vietnam between American soldiers and the army of the North Vietnamese is fought on an area called Landing Zone X-Ray. There's a phenomenal movie I show my students every year called We Were Soldiers, and it is directed and the main character is played by Mel Gibson. And in the movie, it's almost down to the T accurate to what the battle is. So if you are interested in Vietnam and love this episode, go check out that movie, We Were Soldiers. But more in the Battle of Landing Landing Zone X-Ray goes to show just how effective the American military is in fighting a battle against the North. To describe the battle, and I think this is going to be the only battle I'm going to describe to you throughout the war, because even though it's the Vietnam War podcast, it's not even about the war and the battles. It's about the politics behind it. But in this battle, 300 American soldiers are landed to what they believe is a regiment of North Vietnamese soldiers on the run after conflict with an American command post. Moore is a colonel who had fought in the Korean War, and he has what is a brand new um, division of American soldiers in an experimental unit called the Air Cavalry, which is implementing the use of helicopters for the first time on a scale like this. They will use helicopters like cavalry in the times of, of in past time, right? You will use the cavalry to get behind enemy lines and to have pincer movements. And so they'll use the helicopters for this movement. Their goal is to overwhelm the retreating North Vietnamese army and catch them off guard and eliminate them. A, a PR, an amazing PR moment. Look at these American soldiers just now landing, winning the war, fighting for freedom. On the other hand, just sticking it to the North and showing them how strong we can be. And so what unfortunately happens is a trend that we see constantly in the war, that our intelligence was wrong. It was not, in fact, a retreating North Vietnamese regiment. It was nearly an entire division of soldiers. Over 10,000 North Vietnamese were not only not running, but prepared, dug in, and waiting for the Americans to land. You will have 10,000 battle-hardened North Vietnamese regulars, not Viet Cong, legitimate army soldiers who are not using throwaway World War II weapons that the Chinese were gifting them, but state-of-the-art AK-47s, uniforms, helmets, radio communication, and even artillery. 
up against a brand new army of draftees, 300 American soldiers backed up by 12 helicopters. What you're imagining right now is probably a massacre. But Colonel Moore and the 300 American soldiers over the course of three days maintain, stabilize their front line and even win the conflict. It's bloody. Over a third of more soldiers will go down. But over 3,000 North Vietnamese will lose their lives on this. It's not because Americans are a better shot, better guns or whatnot. But it was because the Americans were throwing every single available aircraft in the Pacific region at this battle. In the movie and in history, Moore has to declare what is called Broken Arrow, where the entire front line collapses. And what that means is the entire, every single available aircraft within a 300-mile radius needs to fly in there and literally level the entire region. And they do it. That's the only way they're able to survive with constant bombardment, constant artillery, just to barely stay alive. But it gives the American people some hope. Maybe throughout this war we can survive if we just play it smart. And hopefully it scares the North a little bit. But the North are only encouraged by it. They see this loss as not a loss of a battle, but instead an unfortunate circumstance that now the Americans are going to feel emboldened and they're going to only escalate because they think they can win it now. They know they're not. And the Vietnamese know the Americans aren't going to win this. But now they think, dang it, this war that was only supposed to be shorter, short is now going to last a lot longer because the Americans think they're going to win it. But the North know they're not going to have that issue. Or they know they're going to win. It's just going to take a lot more blood, a lot more sacrifice, and a lot more bullets. But they know they're going to win because if you look at a map of every single battle and every single major conflict that occurs in South Viet- or in the Vietnam War, 99% of them occur south of the DMZ on the 17th parallel. Meaning, 99% of all conflicts that are fought in the Vietnam War are fought on the turf of the defending South Vietnamese. And I believe I mentioned this concept in the Afghan podcast, that when war comes close to home, you are going to do everything you can to end it. Whether that means joining up and serving or calling for the end of a war. When you see bombs and bullets flying into your walls and your windows, you're going to want this war to end. But when I hear about a war on the news, oh, another bomb fell in the Gaza Strip and blank, so many people died. Ouch. You know, that hurts to hear. But it won't ever hit you home until you know that war is in your house. And so the North know they're going to win because they're not fighting a defensive war. They're letting the South take the heat. And the Americans know it too. And by 1968, as the war is escalating more and more, and it's not even close to being over, the American government and Secretary of Defense McNamara have realized that there is no economical, military, or any sort of political victory viable in Vietnam. In fact, they believe, they knew by 1968, the American government knew that by 1968, the war was over. However, the decision was made 
and kept in secret that the war must continue, not for the sake of freedom and not for the sake of democracy or for not even for the sake of the South Vietnamese people. The war must continue in order to save the public and international image of the United States. To save face. We don't want to lose because we don't want to say we lost. So we're not going to admit it yet. We're going to draw it out. We're going to continue to do it. We're going to continue to bleed because we've already given so much. Let's just bleed a little longer and hopefully later we can figure out a solution. Traditional American means of war cannot be translated into a, a war in Vietnam, is what they realized. doesn't matter how many tanks you have, or planes, or bombs, or landing zone x-ray battle victories. The war is going to end because there is no legit ending. And to hide the fact that we're losing by not gaining any territory or capturing any cities, because we're not at war. We can't just invade Hanoi and drop troops on the city and call it a day. The American government finds a different way of calculating and defining victory. Rather than a war fought by territory and by capture and domination, it turns into a body count war. In the times of World War II, we determined victory when American front lines would move forward, capture a Nazi city, defeat, you know, uh, an entire uh, holdout, you know, occupy a German military base. But in Vietnam, victory was determined by the amount of death to, to kill ratio. If 10 Americans died for every 100 Vietnamese killed, the government would consider that a victory. It was the first American war that was about body count and not about territory. And the ratio that the government decided to have was 1 to 10. So if in any sort of confrontation between the American military and the North Vietnamese military had a ratio of 1 to 10, it's a victory. A ratio of 1 to 7, it's a draw. Anything less than that was a loss. And essentially what this means is the American government now created new rules that we are now competing by. Therefore, within our own rules, maybe we can start winning, or at least have the image of winning. And these battles aren't going to be fought in the way that you think. Landing zone x-ray is an anomaly. There aren't so many battle-drawn, you know, defensive perimeter, uh, artillery barrage battles. Most of the fights are done on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This is a trail that leads from North Vietnam, in, from Hanoi, and all the way down through the entirety of the South Vietnamese nation. On this trail, it's not what you imagine. You know, this nice clear-cut, um, well, you know, walked trail that even has enough space for cars. It is a loosely defined trail with no clear boundaries of, you know, the trail. It's just a certain direction you walk in order to get supplies down. This is why most of the battles are fought in the south. Because the north will ne secretly seek, um, move supplies down south. And um, yeah, and they can position themselves right underneath the nose of the south. And this is where most Americans will find their battles. Is they will patrol the areas known to be a segment of this, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Along this trail you will have squads of like 
eight American 18-year-olds who just got drafted fighting up against North Vietnamese regulars who have been born and raised in this area. And so that's where they have to get their ratio of 1 to 10. What ends up happening is exactly what I would do in this situation too. If I'm a sergeant, you know, a squad commander, heck yeah, what an achievement. And I'm told by my superiors, you know, Panchenko, go out there and don't come back until you've killed 80 North Vietnamese. You know, do your 1 to 10 ratio. Yes, sir, I got you. Go out there, walk a little bit of the trail, set up camp, hang out for a week, come back and be like, hey, we killed 80 of them. Congratulations, welcome back, good work. That's exactly what happens. Americans are terrified of being out in the jungle. This is not our backyard. You're getting young guys from Texas and Iowa and California and New York, guys that are either from the city or the countryside, and throwing them into a literal rainforest jungle and expecting them to beat someone who is, that's their backyard, we're not capable of doing that. And so they're going to lie. Or, and if they don't lie, they're going to die. The jungle is an unforgiving place. More Americans will die fighting in or just existing within the jungle than Americans that will die from bullet wounds in South Vietnam. Booby traps are a big factor. Spiders, venomous snakes, malaria, dehydration, heat exhaustion. It was just a terrible idea to be in this sort of climate battling. And so, so many Americans don't really know what they're fighting for. We're in a jungle, fighting for a government that can't even maintain its own security, its own borders, and it doesn't even know why it wants to exist. South Vietnam, unlike the North, has no clear uh, you know, objective survival. They have no clear understanding of what they're doing here. The North has a clear objective for our freedom, to oppress or to oppose the oppressors, and for communism. The South, are you fighting for the Buddhist? Are you fighting for the Catholics? Are you fighting for uh, the fact to not be a communist? Are you fighting for the Americans? What are you fighting for? They don't even know. And the Americans, the soldiers are feeling that, but even more so, the American population is feeling it. Like I mentioned before, the anti-war movement is really kicking up in the gear. And the Vietnam War, up until this point, becomes the most protested war. And it sparks a cultural shift in the country. The anti-war movement against Vietnam spawns the counterculture movement in America. For the first time, we no longer have a homogenous, singular view of what it means to be an American. It's no longer get married, have two kids, buy a house, and serve your country, be a businessman, enjoy your life. Now there's a different option. Now there's options. You walk through any major city in America, and there is no one view of what we all look like anymore. There are categories, there are classifications. However, we are all in our own world and our own understanding of what it means to be Americans. And that begins because of the Vietnam War. This is spawned because of counterculture against the war. I no longer have to be what my government tells me I need to be because screw the government, they lie to me. And so it's not like suddenly we are born into 40 different subcategories of what it means to be an American. 
but the movement is made. Counterculture spawns hippies, anti-war people. There is one singular view of a hippie. If we look back on it, you know, people that don't shower, they have long hair, they grow out a really nice mustache, they do drugs, call out to Noah right there. Um, but their sole existence is to be around to simply oppose what the government tells them what to be. And it spawns this, all out of war. And so counterculture is huge, but they have the, they have the right reason to protest. Because what they see on TV is American soldiers dying. They see their government not telling them, or they know their government's not telling them about expansion of, of war. They see American prisoners being tortured. And so they have the right reason to protest. There's another man that is the highest ranking American to be captured, an admiral. And so this is when the American people find out about the torture. Up until this point, we had no idea. When he is captured, and like many other Americans when they're captured, he's asked to do a recording to send to the American State Department to, uh, to express how his treatment of being a prisoner is going. And usually they're told to lie. You are to tell them that you are being treated well, that you are dressed, or that we are providing you food and clothing, that we are not mistreating you. He goes on the interview, and if you watch the interview, look up Vice Admiral, God, I can't remember his name, look up Vice Admiral uh, South Vietnamese video. In the video, if you just listen to it, it won't stand out to you. He's asked, are you treated well? He says, yes. Are you, are you being fed? He says, yes. But if you watch the video, instead of just listening, you notice something. He is blinking his eyes in a very particular manner. He's spelling out words with Morse code in his eyes. He spells out the word torture. The American people learn the, the, the soldiers being captured in Vietnam are being tortured, only expanding the anti-war movement. Because now only are we in a war we shouldn't be in. The people fighting the war aren't even being treated properly. And to, add, to make things worse, the weapons they're given, they suck. Americans are issued a brand new weapon called the M16, a Colt M16. Wow, sounds fancy. Looks fancy, made out of mostly plastic. The gun shoots um, five, five, six rounds. Not too big, but flies at a supersonic speed, has good piercing, and has good uh, accuracy. However, the gun is loaded with a 20-round magazine. It fires semi-automatic, meaning you can only click one bullet at a time, and is basically what I would describe as a brat. You get a single bit of dirt in there, it's not going to want to work for you. You get any water in there, the gun's not going to work for you. You kind of hit the barrel a little too hard, it's not going to work. It overheats, it's not going to work. And most of all, it jams like nobody's business. Most conflicts where American soldiers' or bodies are found, the gun, the gun next to them is found to be jammed as well. They're not even giving them the proper equipment to fight. Comparing to the Russian-made AK-47 which has a 30-round magazine, fires a 7.62 round, and is probably the best description of the, of the Russian people in a gun. You can drop it, put some mud in it, throw it against a wall, overheat it, do whatever you want, and that thing will continue to work because it's tough. And so in the, in the environment of a jungle, in the environment of a battle in the rainforest on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 
ask yourself, would you be okay being equipped with an M16 where you have to spend a week in the jungle where any number of conditions may exist, water, mud, any sort of dirt, or would you rather have an AK-47? Even down to the weapons we use, we're not even doing it right. And so I want to shift gears a little bit. In response to the Viet Cong and in response to us not having the proper training to fight in a jungle environment, the government issues a directive to train a new force of American soldiers called Tiger Force. And so why Tiger Force? They say because a tiger can hunt a gorilla. You want to out-gorilla the gorillas. What they do is they get a bunch of kids, train them up in jungle environment conditions, give them guns, and they tell them to go out into the jungle of the north or in the south of Vietnam and to out-gorilla the gorillas, to defeat the Vietnamese at their own game. But what happens when you put a bunch of people, boys, whose brains are no longer are no not fully developed, you give them free reign, you give them directive and the added layer of anger because as soon as one of them dies, they're going to hate their enemy and they don't have to follow the chain of command, the people that have quote unquote logic. Tiger force will run rampant across Vietnam and they will report all engagements with Vietnamese innocent or not as enemies and they will kill entire villages and burn down entire groups of people and no charges will ever be brought to them. And you can understand them in a sense because they are put in an environment they're not comfortable with, given guns, and no one to tell them what to do. And if I'm in the jungle with my best friends and someone kills my friend, I'm going to be angry. And it's going to take someone bigger and wiser than me to calm me down, to make me see clearly. But when I don't have a chain of command, I will act irrationally. And so these kids are acting irrationally. It's not a justification. It was a failure of, of command to do that kind of thing. Adding to the list of war crimes that we have committed. The American people will see this and are outraged by it. And so 55,000 people, anti-war protesters, counterculture people, will gather around the Pentagon in response to Tiger Force and to seeing the atrocities they commit. And they will storm the Pentagon. It's a loose gathering of people that do not share the same objective. Some go in there to commit arson. Some go in there to pass out anti-war leaflets. And some just go in there because, whoa, I got to go inside the Pentagon. But it sends a message to Lyndon B. Johnson and his administration that the American people are outraged. They're not happy with this war. Lyndon B. Johnson launches an investigation believing that this entire segment went down because of communist intervention. No way this would have happened organically. It had to be some kind of work of spies. Turns out there was no involvement. The entire organization, the entire thing happened organically. And what's crazy too, all of this happened in the time before so the generation of social media. There was no Facebook group that said, hey, let's go to the, to the Pentagon. There was no like giant text messaging thread. It just happened. That's how universally rejected the idea of the Vietnam War was to the American people. 
And to flip gear again back to the to the nation of Vietnam, I want to talk about one more battle. Hill 875, which would later be called Hamburger Hill. This entire hill is what is a what I call a microcosm of the entire Vietnam War. To paint the picture for you, 7,000 North Vietnamese Army soldiers are positioned on this hill. 875 is the name given to it because that is the elevation of the hill, 875 feet above sea level. It has no strategic value. It has no, um, yeah, no value beyond being a hill where there's enemies. And doing a callback to our, our conception of a body count war, not a one of territory, Hill 875 is a very appealing hill because there's 7,000 enemies on it. We will go there. We will bomb the hill. We will lose a lot of people. It's called Hamburger Hill because so many people's bodies are shredded up going up the hill by bullets and bombs and landmines that it just looks like hamburger meat meshed up on the ground. Americans will take the hill. We will bomb them, accomplish, by, accomplish the, the objective, put our flag on it, take some pictures, and leave. 30 minutes after we leave, the North Vietnamese will reoccupy the hill. And the battle will repeat itself eight times before the war is over a single hill a battle fought eight single eight times each time with disastrous losses for both sides and with no clear objective it is a microcosm of the war because it is blood it is death all within with no objective except for simply being told to do it and doing it and that's what vietnam is throughout the whole battle Let's jump to 1969. It seems like a stalemate. And the Americans believe something is coming. We are tired of fighting hills like Hamburger Hill, but it seems to be working. We're maintaining. We're stable. The North plan the Tet Offensive. Tet is a holiday in Vietnam, and so it's named the Tet Offensive because they're going to attack on a holiday. Their goal, the North Vietnamese government's goal, is to plan a simultaneous attack on every single hill, base, airport, city, government building in all of South Vietnam. 1968, my bad. Um, And so over 100,000 soldiers are secretly placed on the outskirts of every one of those objectives I just laid out, most of which are Viet Cong soldiers. The objective is clear, and the North are so confident this is going to work because they believe that once they begin this attack, more people will rally to their sides, that the South is sick of their government, the people are tired, and all they need is one push to end this battle. And so as the Tet Offensive launches, it is a technical loss. In fact, it is a disaster. Nearly every single Viet Cong soldier involved in the Tet Offensive is annihilated. However, it's a symbolic victory because of one or two facts. One, because it showcased the weakness of the, of the defense of the South Vietnamese government. Because it showed that every single city is subject to attack, that no military base is safe, and that nobody is safe in South Vietnam, that your government cannot protect you. It's a symbolic victory. Number two, because in the Saigon siege, there was a series of Viet Cong soldiers that were captured. 
one of such captors meets a very unfortunate fate. However, his death becomes a symbol of weakness within the government of the South. The chief of police of Saigon in front of him has a, an entire row of, of Viet Cong soldiers that are captured. This is all being broadcasted on TV, by the way. And in this video, or in this broadcast, these people are being arrested for attacking the South. Rather than giving them due process, trying them for criminals, and convicting them of their crimes, the chief of police pulls out his revolver and executes each of them. This will only en enrage the American people. Because we're now supporting, again, a country that doesn't even have due process? That we're going to execute people for simply being the enemy? Yes, if that man were shooting, he deserved to die. In the situation of combat. However, he had already surrendered, and he was already handcuffed, and he was executed in cold blood. The chief of police was an angry man. His whole city had been attacked, I understand. But it's, it's a showcase... It showcases failure of due process. This will launch even more destabilizing acts within the country. At this point in 1968, rolling into 1969, the American country, the nation of America, is arguably the most divided it has been, probably up until 2020. And so what we have is daily riots in every major city, police that are no longer capable of maintaining order and um, the city of Chicago enters a pseudo state of civil war where the police are even ordered to not enter the city because it's no longer safe because the anti-war protesters have become violent. And so the country is falling apart at the seams. You can see why Lyndon B. Johnson hated the Vietnam War. But the city of Chicago erupts even more into, into, um, into chaos when the Democratic National Convention, the party that Lyndon B. Johnson is part of, hosts their convention um, in the city of Chicago to choose who will be their nominee for president. Lyndon B. Johnson chooses not to run again. He says, I have tarnished my name. I have ruined my reputation. I can no longer serve the American people because of this war. An honorable decision. However, what he didn't realize is the de like how much more it would destabilize A, the party, but B, the nation. It would have been better if he had maintained his role as president. But it's an election year. The Democrats have to pick a candidate, and so do the Republicans. As the convention is held in, in Chicago, they have to cancel it and bring in the National Guard to restabilize the country or the city. All the while... While Nixon is or Nixon, dang it, spoil. While Lyndon B. Johnson is refusing to run, the Republicans roll out their trump card, Richard Nixon. Nixon runs as the law and order candidate, the man that is tough enough to take on communism, the man that can restabilize the country and bring law and order back, the man that can win the Vietnam War. We also learned he's a criminal, but that's later. But he runs as the Republican ticket, and. As a show of strength and to show his power amongst American people, he will roll through the streets of Chicago after announcing his run for presidency 
just like Kennedy did in an open motorcade across the city, which a week ago had been declared a war zone by the American government. And what happens is nearly <laughs> a miracle. The protests stop, and it seems like everyone was in favor of his presence there. The police show up in support. The protesters show up in support because everyone knows this man or believes this man is the one to end the war. And so he's going to run. He's going to take on the country. And he's going to win. Spoiler. And he's going to win big. And he will become what we essentially know of as the face of the war. He's going to institute two major programs in Vietnam the second he wins. One is called the Phoenix Program. Cool name. But I don't know why the government hadn't done this in the beginning. So in the program, instead of going in there with soldiers into every South Vietnamese village and seeking out Viet Cong soldiers, we're going to infiltrate them. We're going to send in a single CIA agent into every single South Vietnamese village and just be there and watch. Because what Nixon believes and the administration believes is that the Viet Cong stand out as much as, the, as Americans do in the South. And so the goal is to just be there long enough um, until they figure out who the South Vietnamese are or the, the Viet Cong are. This is a very effective strategy, but it's a little too late. So Nixon, by the advice of his generals, yes, Vietnamization or v, uh, Phoenix program is a great idea, but he knows again it's just another bandaid. I need to get out of here. Kennedy understood this. Lyndon B. Johnson understood this. Now it's my turn to get out. Nixon says, and he's going to do it by doing it by creating a program called Vietnamization. Vietnamization is similar to what Obama tries in Afghanistan with trying to train up the, the, the government to protect itself without the influence of American soldiers. Nixon says it is their war and it is time for them to take over. A great idea on the, on the surface. But what Nixon doesn't realize, or maybe he does realize, is that the nation of South Vietnam is exceptionally corrupt. So the nation of South Vietnam is exceptionally corrupted. It's not because they're inherently bad. It's because there was no clear order of, of succession, of influence, or of executive power. Because they can choose and pick who their president is by death, the military leaders have extensive power. So the nation is corrupt. The army... Vietnamization, the idea is to build up an army of the South to defend the South without the American influence. And so we're going to start pumping in billions of dollars through equipment, bullets, tanks, helicopters, food, blankets, uniforms, whatever the heck they need, we're going to give it to you and we're going to give you a little bit more. And all we ask is that you, the South Vietnamese government, institute a draft. Every man over the age of 18 in South Vietnam must be required to serve. But this is where the part of corruption comes into play. In, in the South, yes, oh boy, I'm required to serve. However, I'm a wealthy man, and I know my local you know, division leader. I'm going to show up with my draft card. Sir, here is 50 bucks. I showed up today and did some training and marched. You get what I mean? 
Yes, sir. Boom, 50 bucks. You got out of here. The, ar- the army on paper of South Vietnam looked huge because apparently every man was serving and the American people were footing the bill for that service. But in reality, the South Vietnamese army was tiny because they often overreported and army groups were understaffed because people were paid not to fight. And so if you're launching a major operation against the North Vietnamese military and you're planning out your attack and your numbers, you're not going to ever win. Because on paper, I got 50,000 troops going up against, you know, a 10,000-person barricade, whatever. Yes, on paper. But when the push comes to shove and the battle starts, only about like 15,000 show up. What the hell? What happened to the rest of my soldiers? They weren't there. And so if you ride the, the streets of Saigon in 1971, you will notice a particular sight, peculiar sight. A lot, a lot of young men, military-aged men, dressed in nice clothing, not in military fatigues, driving around the city. American soldiers will nickname them Vietnamese cowboys, young men that are not serving. The very same people that should be in the battlefront are riding around the city, living their best life, letting the Americans fight their battles. And so, as Vietnamization is being implemented, uh, Nixon will authorize the last great expansion of the war. He will issue 500,000 draft cards, so 500,000 Americans to be sent to Vietnam. Half a million soldiers to maintain order. But I want to paint a counter picture to this. 500,000 Americans are in Vietnam. However, in upstate New York, something interesting is happening. There's this band that will just make an announcement. Hey, we're going to host a festival in upstate New York. Show up if you want. It's going to be fun. We can hang out. It's going to be, you know, anti-war blast. It's going to be great. 500,000 anti-war counterculture people will show up to a festival that is now called Woodstock. And it paints a very interesting picture to what America looks like in 1970. On the one hand, you have 500,000 young 18-year-old kids, boys, being sent to a war they don't like. But under the belief that they are serving their country and what they call themselves patriots. But on the other hand, you have 500,000 counterculture people, the same age, men and women of um, that same age group, showing up to do what they believe is right with an actual added layer of just fun and, and stupidness. But two pictures of what America looks like in 1970. On the one hand, the bloody war of Vietnam, and on the other hand, a counterculture festival called Woodstock, where there's the use of drugs and there's no bathrooms and you got to go pee in a river and line your own filth for a week. But there was as many people at the festivals as there was in Vietnam. It sounds like fun until you probably die, right? But it just paints a really interesting picture of what America looked like at that point. And something else I want to talk about what America looked like at that point. I mentioned it earlier in this episode, but in 1960, America was going through a lot of different revolutions, right? We were changing a lot for the good and for the worse. One such thing that was very, very apparent to the American people was racism. Lyndon B. Johnson tackled the issue with the Civil Rights Act, right, and the Voting Rights Act. But racism isn't stopped with legislation, It's not stopped when you tell someone to fix themselves. It's a cultural thing. 
and that culture bled into the military. Black and white Americans were both drafted into the war. And so racism doesn't disappear when you put on the uniform. The uniform doesn't change a man. It only highlights the qualities that they have. And sometimes the, the, the qualities are valor and bravery and, and selflessness, but other times it's qualities like racism. And so oftentimes um, when black soldiers were drafted into the military, they were given worse assignments. They were given worse uh, you know, orders. In fact, they could be given um, deadly orders. And so racism existed in America in the 1960s to a scale that in 2022 we're not used to. But one of the good things that come out of the Vietnam War was how um, the war brought uh, you know people together. In a way, it opened up their eyes, and I'm talking they by uh, white people, to what the person in front of them, despite their color, is. Because the Vietnamese, they didn't see a black soldier in front of them or a white soldier. They saw an American in front of them. And so, yes, when you're in training, the racism was there and, and the, the administration and the officers, they had it, right? But when the bullets started flying, something interesting happened. People changed. And the man next to you, if you, were, if you grew up hating them, you didn't see that. Because the man next to you was the only thing holding you from death. You would come to respect that man. And so the revolution that we see from the Civil Rights Act, yes, was fought in D.C. Yes, was fought with words and, and legislation and for every single American at that point. However, there was a big front fought in Vietnam that brought Americans closer together. And veterans, white Americans that came back from the war, they didn't soon forget that if there was a situation where there was a black soldier that saved them, they brought that feeling home. And yes, it takes a village and it takes generations, but it began something. So a lot of progress was made because of the war. And so it was beautiful in a way. But there's also some downsides to how war is handled. Yes, we can fix some components to racism, but we also begin to degrade the chain of command. This is outside the topic of racism. In battle, towards the 70s period of the war, American soldiers, when given really stupid orders, over time would learn these are really stupid orders. And oftentimes, these stupid orders were given by young gung-ho officers, usually 20 two 23-year-old kids that just graduated college with a, a military degree and are put in charge of a platoon. And so when they're given their orders by this glory-seeking soldier, by law, they're required to follow it. But there's this trend in the military that starts in the Vietnam War called fragging. And so in this, in the, in this idea, it's uh, American soldiers who frag their officers if they give bad orders. So if I'm a freshly graduated student of, of West Point College. I am now a second lieutenant in the army and I'm being shipped off to Vietnam. And the only thing I want is a medal to bring home. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some risks to bring that medal home. I'm gonna put the people I'm in charge of protecting and leading in danger in order to receive that medal, hypothetically, right? That's the thought of some of these kids going into war. 
when I show up to this war thinking that same conclusion in my mind, and I'm talking to a battle-hardened sergeant or a battle-hardened corporal who's been in this war for months and maybe even a year or two, and I start giving orders that they know is going to lead to the rest of the squad being endangered, they're not going to say, oh, well, I bet he knows what's right. They'll kill me. And so that's what happens. The chain of command in the military starts to fall apart in Vietnam because it's so loosely regulated with no clear, um, you know, right and wrong. When you degrade morals for the sake of convenience, this is the result. We degraded our understanding of morality in the terms of the war because we were thought we were fighting the good guy or fighting the bad guys and we were defending the good guys, but people aren't stupid. They realized that they weren't on the right side and they're going to lash out or they're going to make mistakes because they're no longer, they no longer can clearly see what is good and bad. And that's what happens. A lot of unfortunate deaths occur because of stupid political decisions. Let's talk about North Vietnam for a second. Yes, American soldiers are killing each other and simultaneously fixing racism. Um, But North Vietnam experiences their biggest loss yet. It wasn't the Tet Offensive. It wasn't the Tonkin Gulf. It wasn't the bombings of, of Hanoi. It was in September 2nd, 1969, when Ho Chi Minh will die. The founder of the idea of a free Vietnam the founder of the revolution and the man that proved to the Vietnamese people that they can be free will die. And even though he had lost a lot of his political capital by the end of his life, he was still always seen as a very powerful man and a very symbolic man. Yes, it is a loss for the North Vietnamese people, and I believe he was a very good man. But for one man in particular, Le Zuan, his replacement, this is some good news because no longer is there a man that will oppose him in his decisions to escalate a war. And the man, Lays Juan, will get all the justification he needs to increase the intensity of the war because just following Ho Chi Minh's death occurs likely, publicly, one of the worst war crimes America has ever committed. We have committed many of them. We have done a lot of mistakes. But this one is one of the largest public events that we've ever done. And it is embarrassing. It is called My Lai. This area of My Lai is a series of four villages near each other, near the 17th parallel, which is the DMZ, the border between North and South Vietnam. The village has been mostly cleared out of Viet Cong from American uh, Strategic Command, the, the government believes, okay, we know that um, this city is relatively safe. However, the whole area is usually booby-trapped pretty bad. And so any Americans that go to that area know, sure, I'm not going to necessarily get shot at around here, but there's a good chance that there is a you know, bamboo stick waiting to just lunge at me from the jungle when I'm walking on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And so there was this one, two platoons of American soldiers that were patrolling that area. And the unfortunate situation happens where one of them will die in a very gruesome, brutal death following their trail. 
he falls into a pit along the trail where they had a false bottom. You take a step and there's not dirt in front of you. It's just a pack of leaves that you will fall right through. And he fell right onto three bamboo sticks that penetrated his heart and killed him immediately. Very, very bad way to go down. And it was the, you know, the turning point for a lot of the soldiers in that platoon. They saw that and they had enough. They were tired in their minds of playing it safe and they were going to finally get their anger out. And rather than dealing it with it like civilized adults, they will go back to base, get 30 more guys, and march in a mob for- fashion to the, to the Milai area, where the four villages are, and commence what is 12 straight hours of a massacre. 12 straight hours where 50 American soldiers will do whatever they want to a village of nearly a thousand people. And within these 12 hours, 50 Americans will kill 501 innocent Vietnamese people. And I'll have you know that these weren't even the North Vietnamese. This was a South Vietnamese village that just so happened to be near a booby trap that killed one American. And because they were angry, they responded by killing 501 people. There wasn't even any men in that village. It was all women, children, and elderly. Sure, maybe men, but elderly men. But it wasn't anyone of military age. There was no value to their, to their carnage. Rather, it was a, a, just a crime. And it only ends when an American helicopter pilot is flying over and he's witnessing a, a, a squad of American soldiers lining up Vietnamese people execution style and pulling the trigger. The pilot will then land in between the next firing squad, order his, pilot, or his gunners to open fire on the next American that shoots an innocent person. He will relay this information back to command and the entire platoon is arrested. Their commander, the one responsible for the massacre, Lieutenant Kelly, is put on public trial for what I've said a second ago was the worst public American war crime we've ever committed. But I think there's more to it because the crime didn't end. Callie is prosecuted and initially defended by a lot of people as logical and tough for what he did. But he's also, yes, he gets life in prison. But then weeks later, under the radar or underneath the radar of the press, his sentence is reduced to 20 years. And then his sentence is reduced to nine years, house arrest. And then at the end of it, he only ends up serving two years house arrest for killing a 501 innocent people. I'm not even going to go into the details of how they killed them. It wasn't just going in there and shooting. I'll let your imagination take over and understand what they were doing there. Three years in house arrest for that? You kidding me? And because of Callie's actions, because the actions of a single 50-man group, all 500,000 American soldiers that would eventually come home from the war are going to be treated and looked at just like they were all Callies, just like that platoon at Milai. 
because of the actions of one man. So many American soldiers will fight bravely, the right way, commit no crimes, do their duty, serve their time, get out there, do what they're told, and come home. But they're treated like criminals and villains because of one man, and one man that got off scot-free because he did not get the proper sentence he deserved. And so it is so sad that so many American veterans that have come home mistreated the way that they are because of this man. I read about this story of um, a veteran that came home. He, you know, he fought from 1968 to 1970. He did his tours, came home, had a wife, had kids. And he was saying that in, um, not once did he ever talk about Vietnam until 20 years later, 20 years later, when he was at a friend's house, a friend that he had known for nearly that entire time for those 20 years in between the war. He said, we were great friends. Our kids were really good together. Our wives were good friends. Him and I were great friends. We were sitting in the living room drinking a beer and talking. And only then did I realize that I accidentally slipped that I was in Vietnam. We had started talking about it and I mentioned I was in Vietnam. And he learned that that friend that he had known for 20 years had also been in Vietnam. And both of these men made the decision in their mind that after the war, they were never going to talk about it. Because that's what Callie, Milai, the lies had all done to the, to the soldiers coming home. This was the first generation of American veterans coming home that were not treated like heroes and victors, that were, but they were instead treated like villains, disgusting people. So yeah, they weren't proud to say that they were veterans. It's hard to say you're the veteran of a war that was so morally ambiguous. It's hard to say you were a veteran of a war that was the greatest nothing of history, the biggest nothing in history. So yeah, they hit it. But a lot of them didn't. Yes, they came home and they were villainized. But many of them took that energy and started what was called the VVAW. The Vietnam Vets Against the War. The first ever active group of veterans actively opposing a current war. Yes, you may disagree with a war at any point in history. Every, there is no good war. Let's just put that out there. No war is good. But there was this unspoken code that if you are a veteran, it's not your place to talk about the war until it's over. Let's at least support our boys through it. Not the Vietnam War. Not because, because they weren't treated right. I'm going to come home and I was lied to. Hell yeah, I'm going to protest. So they start the VVAW. And more about them in a moment. Because this, this idea of anti-war is spreading and expanding to different groups, it's no longer just counterculture 18-year-olds. It's now dads and moms who lost their kid. It's politicians who are seeing their communities ravaged by the cost of war. It is veterans coming home. It is students. Single, every single college will experience some sort of protest against the war. One such college, Kent State, had a protest. Protest got a little out of hand. This protest... It supposedly turned violent. And because the police had long ago lost control of the nation during the Vietnam War, 
much of the security around the country at this point is done by the um, National Guard. And the problem with deploying the military to enforce your laws is that they can't do it. <laughs> Simply put, because the police are meant to serve and protect. In theory, they're not there to enforce the law. They are there to serve and protect. The military, on the other hand, that's not their objective. Their objective is to defend against the enemy. And when you deploy the military to become your police force, you're essentially telling the soldiers and the people on the other end of those bayonets that they are the enemy. They're not there to protect the law. And that's not to say that they're good or bad. I'm saying that's not their job. And so they deploy the military to a Kent State University, where the military, the National Guard, opens fire on a crowd, shooting soldier or shooting students. And this is the line for a lot of people. And Nixon knows that this is now a major political drain on his is his administration. I can no longer lead effectively if my soldiers, if my people are killing each other. That's not the America that we're supposed to have. And so he's going to really emphasize the idea of Vietnamization. We're going to get out of there. Uh, We're on damage control. The vice president's going to be out there, you know, doing as much as he can to end this conflict. While in secret, to end the war, Nixon believes he's got to do one more thing to escalate in Vietnam. He needs to invade Cambodia secretly in order to cut off North Vietnamese supplies into the South just for a little while for the American government to get their troops out safely, to cut the supply for a little while just so we can get out. And so (laughs) he needs to close the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This single act will later become the catalyst for the downfall of Nixon. Because he does this single act in secret and he hides it, he's going to be so terrified of this information leaking that he will later commit crimes on, you know, on the federal level, felony level crimes to hide this sort of information. But he begins the process of pulling out of Vietnam. It is now American firepower and Vietnamese blood that are going to win this war. We're, we're, we're going to pull out, but we're going to spend a little bit more to end the war. And so the first great struggle, the first great um, example of Vietnamization for, for Nixon is a battle called Quezon. It should be a simple run-of-the-mill battle. North Vietnamese hold out. Let's send in what would normally be American soldiers to clear it out. They send in a brand new South Vietnamese regiment to go clear it out. And it's an absolute disaster. The South gets their butts kicked so bad that American firepower airplanes have to come in there and bail them out. Nixon and his administration draw out a plan saying, once America leaves, using Quezon as an example, there is no more than six months of survival for the South Vietnamese the second American troops are gone. He doesn't care. Because... We're going to claim that Vietnamization is a success. And if the Vietnamese government is unable to maintain its survivability once we're gone, that's no longer on us. We've done our duty. I'm sorry, guys. If you can't learn, you can't learn. But he doesn't care. So he begins the process of pulling out. 
which drops war morale to an absolute low. Once you know something's over, it's hard to keep fighting for it. How do you tell a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you tell a soldier to fire the last bullet of a war that didn't matter? The veterans are asking that same questions. The VVAW organizes a protest at the Capitol, at the nation's Capitol, and they actively protest Nixon, the administration, for, for still going with all of this. Morale is at an all-time low. Soldiers are still there. Yes, you're pulling out, but why are they still home? Or why are they still there? Why aren't they home? Let's get them out. So the VVAW gather at the Capitol and try to, you know, finish this out. Let's get it home. We're done here. And Sec- Secretary Kennedy, he's secretary now. John Kerry um, will go and make one of the best speeches about Vietnam and sums up what I've been able to do. What is this? 106 minutes in. He's able to sum all this up into three minutes. Look it up later. John Kerry Vietnam speech sums up the entire war in a three-minute speech, and he does it to Congress. But it's overshadowed by what is likely the biggest change in Americana and culture ever. While the war is ending and wrapping up, the VVAW is doing their thing, and war morale is at a low, there was a single reporter from the New York Times that is able to get their hands on all of those documents, if you remember back to episode one or two of this series, of all of the information that Robert McNamara gathered about Vietnam, and that 1968 report claiming that the American people had already lost the war, but yet they weren't going to pull out until their face, their reputation was saved. And it was three decades of U.S. lies, not only to uh, the South Vietnamese government, but it exposed everything I just told you in the last hour and a half about the war. The lies, the deception, the cover-ups, all of the, the secret invasions, all of them were leaked to the, to the press. And what this changes for the American people is we no longer ask the question, would my government lie to me? We now say, my government always lies. This changed because of the Pentagon Papers. It proved that even the, ni- the nicest, well-intentioned presidents and politicians would lie to you for the sake of their own political gain. You ask anybody today, anybody, do politicians lie? All of them are going to say yes. Hell, you even ask politicians, they will say that they, the people around them lie. Probably the only truth in that they can tell you. Pentagon Papers changed that. And that's why we talk about Vietnam. Because it's not a battle. It's not a war. As much as it is exposing because of the, the ability of modern times to show what we've always really been. And it's good to see this. It's good to see the Pentagon Papers because it changes how we view and we're no longer so trusting. We trust, but we verify. In the Pentagon Papers, Nixon is now terrified. The papers themselves do not indict him of anything. In fact, it kind of works out for him. It, it showcases that his two predecessors, both Democrats, were not very good people. But not a single word in there was about him. And that's good for him politically. But he's scared. Because like I said, he had secretly invaded Cambodia. And if the same papers can be leaked about... Um, 
Nixon or Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, then why what's stopping the press from finding information about him in Cambodia? So he's going to hire five individual people secretly using campaign funds, public funds, illegal. You can't use that money for this kind of stuff. Five people he calls the plumbers. What do you call a plumber for? To stop leaks. He wants these five people to infiltrate the New York Times and to see if they have any information going forward about him. That's obstruction of justice, A. And B, it's an illegal use of campaign funds. All of this is because he was scared of information of him leaking um, or him invading Cambodia leaks. And that's going to be the end of him eventually. Nixon is... Actually, we're going to put a pause on that. Because I want to talk about Nixon after how the war ends in Vietnam. While this is secretly going on, he's creating plumbers and going out and <laughs> committing crimes, he, fl- he visits China. Nixon's the first president, American president, to visit the newly formed communist nation of China, opening the door to trade and seeing the country that it's become today. That was one of the best things that's ever happened to China. But he also convinces China to no longer actively support Vietnam in the sense that they are now too, almost like a mutual ceasefire. During this process, the Americans also begin secret peace talks with the North Vietnamese government in Paris. The goal of these peace talks is, we just want to get the hell out. How do we do this without embarrassing ourselves? The South or the North agrees that the Americans can pull out and that the South or the North government will not invade the South for six months after the invasion is over. They will launch offensives and make it seem like the war is not coming to an end, but they won't actively invade for six months. Americans will eventually begin pulling out and the, the Vietnamese will begin their summer offensive. And this looks great for Nixon. So far, the plumbers have not leaked. The war's ending. China's been recognized. Prosperity, peace. Are you kidding me? Heck yeah, that's a win for me. And to give all that gives him such a political boost that when he's running in the 1972 election for re-election against George McGovern, it results in the saddest <laughs> race for president I think I've ever seen. In 1972, Nixon will win 520 electoral votes, meaning every single state except for Massachusetts, in re-election. Clearly, what Nixon is doing is popular and working. The American people love the idea of peace and the idea of the war being over. The war will come to an end. A peace deal is signed. Not even officially a peace deal. It is a ceasefire. American people, the American government, Henry Kissinger, is seen pictured shaking the hands of the the North Vietnamese minister in the agreement that I mentioned before. They shake on it. The war will come to an end. All American troops are to be withdrawn within six months. All American prisoners are to be returned home from the Vietnamese captivity. And all um, North Vietnamese troops are to leave north of the border and are not allowed to expand the conflict. Everyone knows full well that this will not be the case. The North will expand their war. But not under the reign of Nixon. 
despite winning re-election in the most grandiose way, Nixon will have a falling out. Those same plumbers will break into the Watergate Hotel during the right before the Democratic National Convention because he wants to see if they have any dirt on him. And what ends up being one of the weirdest pieces of luck against Nixon or worst case scenario for him, those plumbers are caught. Because as they're sifting through that, that hotel and wiring it for, uh, for audio, one of the guys will leave a door unlocked. And a security guard that should have left 15 minutes prior after his shift, for some apparent reason, will return to the hotel and make one more round of security checks. In doing so, he discovers the plumbers, and they are all arrested, leaving to an investigation, leading to the attorney general figuring out, with special prosecution, very quickly figuring out that Nixon had used campaign finance funds to organize um, this group of plumbers to obstruct the Justice Department from figuring out that he had illegally invaded a country, and he would even try to hire people during this investigation to limit or to, um, what is the term called, Um, to tamper with evidence and to groom witnesses. Nixon has articles of impeachment placed on the House against him. He will resign before they are ever voted on. So technically, Nixon was never impeached. He just resigned before he could be. And so, not his vice president, but uh, Gerald Ford will take over. Under Gerald Ford's administration, he will see to the end of the war. And so, as American troops finally pull out, under now their fourth, what is it, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, and now Ford, under the fourth administration to oversee a war, the war comes to an end. Once American troops have withdrawn, the North does not actually hold up their end of the deal. They do not wait to invade. They invade immediately. And because of corruption, because of the lack of American firepower, because the lack of reason to exist, really, the South government falls apart as quickly as the North can advance. The Arvin fought bravely against them, but it wasn't enough. And the streets of Saigon are filled with North Vietnamese troops, tanks, even helicopters. And the last Americans who are working at embassies or tourists or whoever they are, are instructed that when they hear the song, it's beginning to look like a white Christmas over the radio. It is a signal to immediately evacuate to the embassy. The song was chosen because it was the middle of June. And that why the heck would you play a Christmas song that every American would know immediately that that was the time, that was the cue to go. There's the famous image of an American helicopter standing over or hovering over the American embassy with an entire line of Americans waiting to get out. And what you don't see at the bottom of that image is the entire courtyard is filled with North Vietnamese soldiers. They're not shooting at them. They're cheering at them to leave. And so the war ends in the exact same way that the Afghan war ends. In a disaster in a scramble to get home, and we're all left with the same question. Why were we there? Why did we support the wrong side? Why did we continue to support? Why would our leaders, who seemingly, we believe, were the good guys, do that to us? 
And so, as I wrap up this episode, I think the name What I Wish I Learned doesn't really stand here because I think what we've learned is nothing. <laughs> the, the Vietnam War teaches us very little lessons. We can see how some things played out and why things change, but we now know the story. We don't understand the story. And it seems like the very same people making decisions today are doing the same thing. And so I really hope you've enjoyed this solo episode of the Vietnam War. Let me know if you've enjoyed it, and I will catch you next time.